If you'll notice the the the, the slide, uh, run carefully this morning. We've been. This is our third week in Hebrews chapter twelve. If you remember, and we'll get into it in a moment, but the 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 writer started this with run this race. He starts the chapter with that. But the reason why this photo is up there, it, when Stacy and I went to Israel, we got out of uh, the bus we were in. We were up in the Golan Heights, northwestern Israel, uh, in, in uh, territory that had belonged to Syria, uh, but was taken by Israel in a previous war. But in the Yom Kippur War in 1973, the Syrians rolled across the border with battalions of tanks and and invaded Israel. They thought that they would do it on their greatest holiday, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement that we've looked at, uh, and and figured they could catch the Israelis off guard and all of that. Not going to go into all that. But one of the things that they did when they were there was they mined, they, and I don't mean mined minerals, I mean they planted landmines throughout the region. When we would get out of our bus, every time we'd get out of our, out of our bus for quite a bit of territory, the, the road would be lined with these signs uh, saying in English and in Hebrew and in Arabic, watch out, there are landmines here. And, and you're very careful not to go off the road very far. Uh, and I got to thinking about that as I was preparing for this morning, thinking, you know, in a way, that's kind of like the Christian life. Uh, yes, has has the war been won? Absolutely, it's been won. Jesus took uh, what was rightfully his at the cross. When he atoned for sin, he not only did that, but he took, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they surrendered the title deed, they surrendered dominion over the earth to Satan, and he took it back. He took the right to redeem the earth back, although he has not, you could look at the earth has been in escrow through this time. Because in Revelation chapter 5, we see that he literally, at the end of the age, takes the title deed to the earth back and, and at that point begins to judge the earth and to cleanse it from sin. So in this in-between time where Jesus has won the victory, we can live in that, in that, in that victory. We live in the reality that he's atoned for sin and that the Holy Spirit has been given for any who would trust in him that he comes in, gives us power, gives us the ability to live, gives us the ability to beat a hasty retreat from sin and to live well in this age. However, there are still some landmines out there. There are things out there that will trip us up. There are a lot of things that are not sin. We've looked at that, that are hindrances to our walk with the Lord. And and so I started thinking about that and thinking, you know, we need to be people who walk carefully, who run this race carefully, because it requires intention. It requires focus. It requires energy that we don't just bumble along because God's will for us is to have an intelligent faith. God's will for us is for us to be able to to walk well in this life, even though there are many obstacles along the way. And the the Hebrew believers in the first century had a lot of obstacles. They were going through a lot. Um, I'm going to read something to you from uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, 
talk about people who went through a lot, who went through a lot of trials. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I've spent in the deep in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brothers, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Then he adds this, he says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to live in a land that was mined. He he knew what it was to live in a place where there were perils all around. These people that the writer in Hebrews is writing to are experiencing no shortage of perils. They are seeing that persecution is on the rise. They're seeing that there's great loss. We've talked about that a lot. But what the writer wants to do here is to show them, look, it's not futile. God didn't forget about this. He's gone into, last week we looked at uh, chastisement and godly discipline, which is actually proof of his love. And the bottom line is, is that uh, we're, we're not called to be his and then left to make it on our own. In God's word, we receive instruction, insight, and through his spirit, we, we receive power to live, to carry the things out that we deal with on a daily basis. There is great application to the church in these passages. So uh, if you wanted to look at a subtitle, it, it, as far as run carefully, and a subtitle for uh, the message today, it's get strong and get right. Next week, as we finish chapter 12, it will be get bold and watch out. Uh, there's some great stuff at the end of chapter 12 that the Lord willing will get into next week. So, but our goal here, folks, is not to just come, as you know, uh, is not to just come and, and, and to fill our heads with Bible study. As good as that is, the goal is to be able to come out of this place, to come away from spending time in God's word and apply these things to our lives. That is all important. We don't just come to fill our heads. We come to have our hearts filled. We come to get instruction from him so that when we go, and and, and you've heard me say before, this is the huddle. If you use football as an analogy, and it's the rest of Sunday all the way through the end of the week where we run the plays. This is where we huddle up. This is where we get instruction. This is where we get strengthened. And, And we'll look at it this morning. There is something that happens when we're together. Corporate worship, corporate fellowship, part of God's design for the church. So as we look at this and we think about how difficult life is, I'm reminded in John 15, Jesus says this. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. So 
When we look at that, we see that Jesus warned ahead of time. Here we are 30 years out from the cross with these people that are being written to in Hebrews. And he had warned ahead of time, look, it's not going to be easy in earthly terms at times. There will be times of great stress. There will be times of hardship. There will be times of heartache. And yet he says, be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. So cheer up, he says, in the midst of hardship. And that's one of the marks of a Christian that has always blown me away. It's one of the marks of a child of God that that we can go through things and it doesn't mean that we like it. It doesn't mean that we're excited about it. It doesn't mean that we're embracing the hardship itself, but that we can go through and understand that God is in it. That's the point that he was making as we looked at chastisement and discipline last week. So to catch the context here, I want to back up to to chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, It's not on the slides, but I just want to cover this because it's really important that we see as we discover the context for this morning's passage uh, where it starts. It starts actually in verse 1. He says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we talked about that. that hinder. Not necessarily sin. Yes, sometimes sin, but not necessarily. But we lay those aside. We identify them through the, again, through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no real consciousness of sin. There, that's why people can bumble along. I mean, if you, if you are part of a conversation with people in the world, it doesn't take long, generally because of the language that is used to discover that there's no consciousness of sin. And yet, that's something the Holy Spirit brings to our lives. We have this consciousness of sin and waits. We know that there are things that are not good for us, not beneficial to us as we walk with the Lord. And and as he puts his hand on those things, we surrender them to him, and we, as a result, walk well. And we can run well, run this race. This is run it with endurance, uh, that means that you bear up. Uh, I jokingly said uh, a couple of weeks ago, suck it up. That We understand that there are times where he says, you know what? I know it's not easy. I know that this is hard. I know, but you know, there are things I am doing that the, uh, I wrote one time when my daughter had been in the hospital for a year, uh, were it not for the lessons that can only be learned when one's life is pressed in on every side, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. And yet there are great lessons to be learned, great revelations from God that can only come as we are seeking him in the pressure, in the hardship, in the trial. That's part of what trials are for. Verse 2, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And remember, I talked about the word hours in, in italics. So he's the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In verse 3, he says, For consider him who endured. Consider him, Jesus, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. He knew, the writer knew, these people were enduring hostility from those around them. They would get up in the morning and not know what that day held. They knew, though, that it was going to be tough. They knew that their culture had turned upon them, that the religious establishment had turned upon them, that the government was against them. They knew that there were great pressures. 
We have different kinds of pressures in our lives, and yet there are at times great pressures in our lives. And he says, consider Jesus, he who endured such hostility, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And that's really key to where we pick up again this morning, because uh, he says you're weary or you're weak and discouraged. The purpose of verses 12 through 17 that we're going to look at are to strengthen and encourage. It's the opposite of what he's talking about there. And so last week we looked at this chastening, this loving discipline as proof of God's love. And, and, and he says there, he says, guard against anger, guard against discouragement, guard yourself about against that. He says, because if you are in that place, you have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons and daughters, that you will be chastised by God. It's proof that you belong to him. The point is that he makes in all that where we ended up last week was that he says afterward, after enduring the trial, understanding that he's doing things in our hearts through the trial, that it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We, we talked about the, the part of what the vine dresser does is to train the vines, to train the canes. And, and to where he bends them, there's a snapping inside, but he doesn't break them. And it's very often what God does with us. So as we get into today's text in verse 12, I'm going to read through verses 12 through 17, and then we'll come back and take a look at it. He says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." So as we look at this in verse 12, he says, therefore strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. He's not saying your hands and your knees. What he's talking about is the hands and the knees of others. It's an exhortation to come alongside here. Uh, It's actually in the original and, and in their culture, this was an idiom. You know what an idiom is? I remember when I was growing up, if I said, wow, that's far out. That didn't mean it was a long ways away. And man, I thought it was cool. Oh, that doesn't mean it's cold. See, those are idioms. And and so an idiomatic speech is something that every culture has. That's why when Jesus said, what about you do with you, woman, when they came to him, remember? And and people look at that and go, oh, he was a misogynist. He was this anti-woman, da-da-da-da. No, it was an idiom. It was actually a sign of great respect when he said that. So the idiom here. It means to strength, straighten paralyzed knees. That's literally what's being said here. And, and the word there is the word for paralysis. Uh, it means to gain encouragement by a strong resolve. It means to be encouraged, to encourage oneself in a determined way. It's an active, uh, it's a present imperative is the tense. And it means to continually be acting with strength and, incur- and determination. It's the same kind of a picture like you've seen in the movies where the boxer is just getting the tar beat out of him and he goes over when the bell rings between rounds and, and you know, they're wiping his face and all that and somebody whispers to him, get back in there. You can do it. You can do it. It's that, and he gets back in, you know, and then he, he really 
cleans house and all that. It's that determination. It's, 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 it's a, it's a strong determination. It's, I am gonna over, I am gonna do this. I don't care. I am gonna, my eyes are on the prize and it, I know it's gonna be pain. I know that things are gonna, you know, and it's just that, that's what's conveyed in this idiom when he says strength and feeble knees. Verse 13, he says, make straight paths. Uh, literally, paths there is wheel tracks. Make straight wheel tracks for your feet so that what is lame not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So he says three things here in verses 12 and 13. He says, he talks about the hands that are hanging down. He talks about feeble knees or weak knees. And he talks about making straight wheel tracks or paths for your feet. He's still using the illustration of a race and a racer. He is still saying, look, guys, you're in this race. I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I know that things are hard. And the posture of a racer that has gotten discouraged, that has gotten worn out. Uh, I've got a slide here. I don't know if he's got it up here or not. But the, the, the posture is, is the, and I looked, I I, I googled uh, tired race, uh, foot race, and tired. I, I don't remember exactly how I constructed it. But what I saw universally was when people are just worn out from the race, they bend over and they put their hands on their knees because they can start to get, they can relieve the stress on their body. Uh, and, and it's just a posture that I saw was there. And what he's describing here is that posture. The hands that are hanging down and the weak knees. And he's saying, find a straight path for your feet. Uh, it's interesting. What the writer's doing is he's giving a loose quote from Isaiah 35. And in Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4, we read, Strengthen the, not your, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. So what God is saying in Isaiah, he's saying, tell them to trust me. I will come and I will rescue. That's his part our part is to come alongside. And what he's doing, the writer's telling the strong one to come in and to help the the weary. He knows that these people are worn out. He knows that they're under great trial. I came across another slide. Uh, This is an interesting slide. This is something that happened three months ago today. Uh, And I want to read you this article. And it really, it really touches on what we're talking about here and what the writer is talking about here in Hebrews. Brema Sunkar Dabo prepared for the men's 5,000 meter race. That's a long race. 5,000 meter race on the first night of the World Track and Field Championships in Doha, Doha, Qatar, with the goal of representing his Guinea-Bissau homeland, that's a nation in Western Africa, as well as possible. He did that and more with a touching display of sportsmanship. While Jonathan Busby of Aruba on the verge, with Jonathan Busby of Aruba on the verge of collapse on the last lap, Dabo slowed and helped Busby around the last turn and crossed the finish line nearly five minutes later as the crowd at Khalifa Stadium gave them a standing ovation. The main objective was to represent my country as well as possible, and I'm happy I could help the other guy, Dabo said Friday. I saw he was not running in the right way. He was, he was leaning. I realized he wasn't going to finish. I knew I wasn't going to beat my personal record, so when I realized that, it was better to go for the main aim, which is to finish the race. My thoughts were to help him finish. 
That's the point of the race. And I thought, wow, you know, here's a guy, he's competing. His, his adversary, I mean, these guys compete with each other. This guy's having trouble. He identifies it. He gives up his own standing in the race to come alongside and to help the guy that was starting to really, uh, he was in danger of collapsing on the field and not finishing the race. And I thought, wow, Lord, you know, I read this and I thought about the, the, remember the Roman centurion with Jesus and he said, I'm a man of authority, I'm a man under authority. I thought, this guy has understanding of what it is to be others centered. And that's what the writer is talking about here. He's not talking about being self-centered. This is like, I'm going to run this race and I don't care about you. What he's doing here, what, it, what this great illustration that we get from this, these real events that happened three months ago is, is this guy sees that someone else is struggling. Rather than becoming upset or, or thinking, well, you know, gee, you know, look at that guy. I wonder, is there sin in his life? You know, or any of that stuff is saying, you know what? My brother, my sister is struggling. And, and it behooves us as Christians to understand, to have eyes that see, to say, you know, I'm not going to be critical of that person. You know, very often I deal with people who have, are, are in a very hard way in their life. And I learned a long time ago, folks in the ministry, that it's not my place to have a judgment about the decisions that drove them to the place that they're at. My place is to have compassion. My place, your place, is to be Jesus's hands, to be Jesus's mouth, to be Jesus's heart in the, in the lives of others who are struggling. You let him deal with why they got to where they're at. You simply be a vessel through which he can pour out his love and his grace. That's what I see with this guy, Dabo and Busby and all of that. Uh, his heart was, you know, I just, I really don't, I have to take a secondary look at how I finish the race and I need to come alongside my struggling brother, even though they were in competition with one another. What we can dr- derive from this, folks, is, if you're in a place, and I have been in places in my Christian experience over the last, gosh, between 35 and 40 years, where I've been weak, where I've been struggling, and, and I can clearly remember people who have come up to me or who have ministered to me in a really special way, you got to be in a place. The Bible tells us it's easier to give than it is to receive. you got to be in a place where you're willing to, to humbly receive where you're willing to be ministered to, that's hard at times. It's tough because that thing in us is like, I don't want to have, I don't want to show weakness. I don't want to, especially for guys. It's like, we have this whole thing. It's like weird. I'm not going to rabbit trail on that. I'm not going to, but you know, it's hard for people to serve us at times. And yet I want to encourage you, don't steal the alongside and, and to, uh, to minister to you, if they see that you're struggling in the race, that you are in danger perhaps of not finishing or that you have something on your plate that's overwhelming and they have the ability to come and to pour into you, let them. Let it happen. On the other side of that, if you are a person and you are going along well, pray that the Lord gives you eyes to see and gives you a heart, his heart, for others who are struggling. Be willing, be available to come alongside. 
Don't just figure that's somebody else's job while somebody else will minister to them. If folks, we don't know. We it, Part of why I encourage you, you know, I say you guys are really good at loving each other. And I want you to be that good at loving the person that walks in that door. We don't know what their life looks like. We don't know what kind of hardship they have. We don't know what's driving them, perhaps for the first time in years, to go to church, to seek the Lord, to seek answers. Don't think it's somebody else's job. I don't have time to get to everybody. Don't think it's somebody else's job to go and to just share the love of Christ. Come out of yourselves and be that vessel through which God can work and pour his love into the heart and the life of another. And that might not be a church. It might be my wife was in the grocery store line the other day and, and, and we had an extra gift basket. The church did because we had set it up for a family to receive it and that it didn't work out. We didn't get contacted back and all that. And we were thinking, and she said, I'm just praying every day, honey. I'm praying that, that God will, that he'll just tell me. And so she's at the grocery store the other day and she says a woman who looks very ill and, and it, it just like she was struggling and, and she overheard her say, and she's counting out, you know, in her purse, and she's saying, we'll, we'll figure this out. We'll, we, I think we can make it. And God told her, he said, that's the one. And she went up to this woman and said, could I, like, bless you with, you know, and, and she told her she was a Christian and all of that. And this woman was at the point of tears. She talked to her son when they got to the car to transfer the things. He says, yeah, there's... Uh, she said, are you are you the only... Ch-? She said, no. He said, no, there, my mom has five kids. And we're trying to, they're trying to put Christmas together for, and, and it was just a beautiful thing. How the Holy Spirit, again, it's just a great illustration of what we're talking about here. Have those eyes, have those ears, be that person that is willing to come out of yourself, to come out of your own comfort zone, to come out of your own shyness a lot of times, and to just love other people. You don't know what's going on in their lives. I don't. But God does. And he's looking for people who are willing to be vessels to pour his love into another. That's the point. When he's talking about straight wheel tracks here, he's talking about uh, removing the stumbling obstacles. What they had at that in those days, when they did their foot races, they used arenas that they often would use chariots and all of that and that there would be wheel tracks on the track and and we call them lanes that runners run in now and they're painted lanes that they run in and he's essentially saying straight wheel tracks stay in your lane and look for the lane and clear the obstacles as you run what he's talking about is a smooth running surface the application is that it's important that we leave the right path as we run this race, as we go through, as we are obedient to the Lord, that we leave a clean track behind us as well as take care of the track that's in front of us. The testimony of your life means a lot. Folks, we're always being watched. The world is looking at us. Our families are looking at us. Other Christians are looking at us. And it's just, it's just wisdom to know that the impact that my life has on others. Am I proud of everything in my past? Oh, heavens no. But do I, is the desire of my heart to, to live well, knowing that other people are, are looking at the path that I leave? Yeah. 
good or bad, will influence those who come after us. Verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our responsibility as believers, not just learning, but doing. James chapter 1 says this, For if anyone is a hearer of the word, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and then immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks at the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. He's saying, don't be like the guy that looks at himself in the mirror. You turn around, it's like, what mirror? (laughs) And, And we can do that. We can come here and get built up and go, man, good Bible said, good word. You know, Lord, thank you for speaking to my heart and all of that and go out and just live for ourselves. That's the guy that he's talking about. That's the woman. Those are the things that he addresses in each of our hearts. He's saying, don't just listen, do it. The word pursue here, the Greek word is dioko. It means to run after, to do something with intense effort. And with a definite purpose or goal, it means to strive towards something. What he's saying here is chase after peace. Again, a running term. Pursue it. Run after it. It's not always easy. People rankle us sometimes, don't they? I don't know about you. They do me. But they do. I mean, people rub us sometimes. It's not possible for us to do these things in our own strength, guys, but it is possible with the Lord's help, with his strengthening us, with us walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. We can do these things. So what about the person that refuses my love? What about the person that refuses to live in peace with us? There's some good advice. Leave them alone. Romans 12.18 says, As much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. I pray for those through whom I've had a a broken, perhaps, relationship, or people that reject me because they reject Christ. Jesus said that had happened. And, and, and I leave them alone. I, I guess, do I, if I have opportunity to love them or, or to have grace for them, absolutely, I'm going to show that to them. And I just pray that God gets their attention and works in their heart because sometimes getting along with one another is kind of a one-way street. Accept that. Don't beat them up about it. Be gracious and allow them to have the place that they have. Sometimes, folks, you're you're riding a dead horse trying to get a hold of them or to try to get through to someone who does not want to be gotten through to. Um, so, but part of his sanctifying work is pursuing peace, pursuing those relationships, especially ones that are broken, to be healed. And very often, you know. <sighs> When we have a broken relationship, very often the best somebody can do, sometimes those words, oh, they're really hard coming. I'm sorry. You know, the old, I'm, can't quite get it out. But you watch someone's posture. Watch, listen to their words. Very often people are reaching for reconciliation and they're struggling. Meet them in that place. Go the extra mile. Take what they're offering. 
If it's just a little bit, take it, receive it, and be forgiving. Pursue peace. The point here, it's interesting. Why does he say pursue peace and holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Vertical and horizontal relationships in God's economy, in God's kingdom, are linked. Listen to this from 1 John chapter 4. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he doesn't, he who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The point is there's a strong connection between our human relationships and his sanctifying work. When we talk about holiness, that's what it is. We talked about that last week. He is sanctifying. He has sanctified us and he is sanctifying us. He has declared us holy and he is making us holy. There is a link between our horizontal relationships and what John says here, how can you have you know, trash this horizontal relationship and, and, and yet say you love God? No, that doesn't make sense. Because the heart of the person who has been transformed by the grace of God should have grace for relationships horizontally. You can't, you don't understand grace if you're holding out with a brother or a sister or a family member or somebody else. It doesn't make sense. And so, what he's saying is that God is in this. He links those horizontal relationships as much as depends on us. I understand that with the vertical. They're connected. The result as we pursue those things very often is healing. When he talks about pursuing holiness, I, I, I don't, I, I don't see this as, um, Necessarily, when he says you can't, if you you won't see the Lord, uh, but he's talking about living lives that are separated to God. That's what the word means. It means to be set apart, uh, and so we're separated to God's ways. Christians are live lives separated to godliness, pursuing personal, practical holiness. We don't go out and just live for ourselves. We don't live for the world. Romans 12.2 says, And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're to be different. Now, I want to qualify that. We're not to be weird, but different. We live differently. We follow a different master. We understand that our lives are in process. And we understand that the sanctifying work that God is doing in us, He takes seriously. Part of why these people are going through trials. He's conforming us to the image of his son. So when he talks about at the end of verse 14, without which no one will see the Lord, I really don't think that that's talking about salvation. But think about it, folks. He's talking to believers. And when I'm not pursuing peace, when I'm not pursuing holiness, when or living a life that's set apart, my relationship with God is going to suffer. I think that there's a a distinction that needs to be made here. There is a difference between having a broken relationship with God and having broken fellowship with God. I have, now, when my kids would blow it, uh, would I go to them and say, you're not my child anymore? No, of course not. But would I go to them and say, look, we're not having fun right now. Go to your room. I'll be there in a few minutes. And that was that time where I'd like let them sweat. Um, all right. I, no, I didn't enjoy it as much as it sounds like, but, um, well, maybe a little bit. But the point is, is that when, 
there's a difference in the relationship. They're always my kid. I mean, if they're my children and we're his children, but the relationship shifts when we're in sin or when we're in an area where we oughtn't be or we're in some aspect of rebellion, the relationship that we have with the Lord shifts. We can break fellowship with him. In other words, the Holy Spirit's work is not that of empowering. Yes, it is empowering. He empowers our lives as we go along. But when, when I am, when he is wanting to get my attention and when I am in rebellion towards him in either a major or a minor way, the work of the Holy Spirit shifts from that of empowering to convicting me. He shifts. He, he comes along in front of me and he says, John, stop it. John, get right with me. John, repent of that thing, whatever that is. So I no longer have fellowship with him in an active sense going forward. The relationship is intact. So I think that's what the writer is doing here. He's saying, look, don't break fellowship with God because you're not going to see the Lord in it. It's not going to happen. You will not be enjoying the fellowship of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit's work is that of heading you off at the pass. So the writer now, he's going to go into a warning and he gives three cautionary statements as we move forward. He, he used three words, the word lest, and like, unless we, he has three statements here. In verse 15, he says, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And he also says, lest any root of bitterness springs up. And then in verse 16, he says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. So let's unpack this a bit. Verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. He talks about looking carefully. Interesting Greek word there. The word is episcopio. Now, remember, if you look in First Timothy chapter three, it says, "If a man desires to, to, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a good work that he desires to do." The word overseer there is episkopos. It, what it means, it means to oversee. So looking carefully here, he's not talking about somebody who is passively looking. He's talking about somebody who has a heart to look after. It means to care for, to look after, with the implication of continuous responsibility. It's the same word that's used for bishop or for overseer, for elder. It's that type of a deal. Uh, What it means is to give careful consideration to something with the implication of guarding against. So when he's saying, look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, in context, he's saying, Be concerned lest anyone fail in respect to God's grace. Guard against turning back from the grace of God. And we've seen that repeatedly in the book of Hebrews here, where the writer is exhorting them and saying, don't fall short of his grace. Look carefully. The Hebrew believers were thinking about going back to law. We've talked about that. We've seen it in the text up until this point. He's saying, you're going to fall short. If you try to live in Torah, it's not going to work. You have been delivered. The law is of no effect any longer. And the the strong temptation that those people had was to go back to what they knew. And, and, And the writer's gone to great lengths earlier in this letter to say, no, 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 that's not it. There's nothing there. Uh, The apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter two. He says, 
For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21 here, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. God wants us to have a love relationship. It's not on the basis of law. And and so when we talk about that, we look at what he says here. He says, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up. Uh, and by it, many people are defiled. The, the, the word defiled means dirty. It means unclean. If you remember in the Old Testament, the, the priests would say they were defiled if they touched something dead or if they're, yeah, and there's a whole list of things that defiled them. They were, they were constantly having to go to the mikvah and be ceremonially cleansed. They still do that in Israel. They still have the cup with two handles so they can ceremonially wash and let the water run down their arms and all of that. But he's talking about defilement. So in this case, what he's talking about is a root of bitterness will cause a decay. It will cause a a dirtying of the things of God, of the grace of God. And, And folks, bitterness is a big deal. It's not stagnant. Bitterness is, it's a bitter fruit. Uh, when he talks about roots, roots are not seen, but, uh, bitterness can grow. And I encourage you, don't let it. It springs up. We all are going to be mistreated or misunderstood. How many times have you been wounded or offended or wronged or abused even? How many times in our lives will someone turn against us? Bitterness defiles mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It takes away from us. It doesn't benefit us. It doesn't give anything to us. It simply takes away. It puts salt in the wound. There's a deep-seated anger that's usually attached to bitterness. I remember after a Bible study at a Calvary Chapel in California in my in my mid-30s, uh, Pastor Bob was teaching on bitterness. I went home, I was mowing my lawn, and, and the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, you're bitter. I said, what? He said, you're bitter. Uh, I'm just mowing my lawn. And, and it, it kind of brought me up short. And I thought, wow, Lord, what are you saying? He said, you're bitter towards your mother. As I had been subjected to years of trauma and abuse as a kid. And I, had, I was really angry with her for staying with that guy. I was going to say jerk, but we're in church. Um, I mean, really, I mean, I was bitter and, and I had packed that bitterness along through my life. And I was, and it took this clarity, this moment of clarity out with my lawnmower of all things to, to, for God to get my attention. And I went in, I got on the phone and I got a hold of the guy that was kind of my second command in my business stuff. And I said, Hey, I got to go. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Washington. I was in Northern California. I drove all the way to Port Orchard, Washington, where my mom lived that night. Drove all night. And I knocked on her door the first thing in the morning and and she answers the door. It's like seven o'clock in the morning. Hair's all sticking off her head, you know, and she says, Johnny, what are you doing here? And I said, I I picked up a card at a mini market somewhere, I don't know, in the middle of the night. And I said, well, I got a card for you. I couldn't find a stamp, so I thought I'd drop it off. And she said, get in here. And so 
I went in and, and, and she said, seriously. And then she started getting excited like you're, you're giving me some kind of a bad notice about somebody. In the, I said, no, everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. But it, it blew her away. And I, I said, I had to come. And I got to talk to you, mom. I'm, I, I, I got to share my heart with you. And I started to cry. And I, sorry, I feel the emotion come up even now. And I said, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I have held on to bitterness against you for staying with Chuck. That was my stepdad's name all these years. And it wasn't until just yesterday that God got a hold of my heart on that and showed me that I have some work to do. And, and she, at first she got really upset. She said, you're asking me to forgive you. you because she had packed around guilt all those years. She had six kids and no way to put food in their mouths unless she stayed with this guy was the way she reasoned it out. And she knew that it was hard. Anyway, long story short, folks, if bitterness is growing in your garden, pull it out. I had the most glorious relationship with my, and it wasn't a bad relationship before then, but my that was in November, I think of 1992. And in July of 1993, she went to be with the Lord. For those months, and I, I'm so grateful to God that he, that he healed that. And, and more than healed it, we had a, a beautiful, wonderful relationship for those last several months of her life. The point is, I, that's my story. That's how God was dealt with bitterness in my heart. I don't know if you're packing around bitterness, but it grows. It's like a cancer. It will eat at you. Perhaps you can't go to someone and deal with it. You've got a father who loves you, who wants to have your whole heart. If there's bitterness, take it to him. Good advice from God's word. There are so many avenues that bitterness can take. It could be from a parent to a child, like in my case, or, or a sibling or a coworker or a spouse. It could even be a pastor, uh, society as a whole. I've seen people who are bitter with God because someone has died and, and, and they're blaming God rather than living on a fallen planet and knowing that God is a God of redemption and life. They, they want to push him out now. It's, it's just a hard thing. Bitterness is harmful to ourselves. It's also harmful to others. That root of bitterness grows. If it's not dealt with, it will control one's life. It's consuming. How do I deal with bitterness? The first thing is I look at my own life. I think about Jesus with the sinner in the public. And when he tells the story that they both stand up to pray and the, and the, the publican says, Oh God, I'm sure thankful I'm not like these other guys. I'm so glad that I've got it together and they, by the way, don't. And you know that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's his attitude. And then the sinner gets up there and says, God, be merciful to me. He just pours it out. And, and, and he's saying, I am a sinful man. I have sinned greatly. Please have mercy. I want to pack around bitterness. I need to have that posture to, to say, Lord, look at what you have forgiven me for. Perhaps I need to do some forgiving myself. That's, that's God's heart. When tempted, don't allow it to take root. Don't. Have grace. That's 
where grace really comes into play. Unmerited favor. I love you not because you're doing anything that's meriting my love, but because I choose to love you. And I don't have that kind of love in myself. It's easy to love those that are lovable, the Bible tells us, but those that are not so lovable, that's where God's love working through me comes into play. Verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Interesting, Esau was not a man of character. He was both immoral and godless. He wasn't, he, he wasn't a man who revered God. He had no reverence for God at all. Uh, he says here, uh, fornicator, a profane person. The word fornicator is pornos. Uh, and he says not to be a, a man like Esau. He's not specific. Yeah, he's talking about Esau as an example, but he's talking to us. He's talking about running carefully and not drifting into, out of our lane that God has ordained and into sin. What he's talking about here is somebody who is like Esau that strays into pornos. And we know one of the hugest, why is pornography like one of the largest industries that there is? And it's dangerous. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it, and this representative, he says fornicator, he's talking about sexual sin. I mean, destructive beyond imagination. And so he's talking about that. He's talking about a profane person, a godless person, one who lives for the world and not for God. That was Esau's life. Remember, he was an example. He typifies worldliness here. He sold his birthright for a bowl of beans, for some lentil soup. He was hungry. Understand, in the story of Esau, he was hungry. He was not starving. But he held a low value for spiritual things. He sold his birthright. He was in the line of Messiah. And he tossed it for a meal. In the story of uh, Jacob and Esau, where uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago, uh, it says it, we see in Genesis where uh, Isaac is dying and 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 he uh, wants Esau to go out and hunt for him and bring him a meal, and and Jacob and Rebecca, his mother, get together. Talked about dysfunctional families. Anyway, Jacob and mom get together, and and she hangs fur on his arms and he goes in with the meal and he gets the blessing from dad from Isaac and then he takes off and and then Esau comes in with the whole deal and he goes well I already blessed you he says well no that wasn't me oh I blessed the wrong guy well he blessed the right guy Esau interesting he got upset there he wanted the blessing but he had already sold it he it wasn't his to have and so he goes in and he says, Father, you gotta bless me. You gotta, you gotta bless me. And, and Isaac says, no, I've done what I've done. And, and Esau weeps there. We looked at that in Genesis. That's why I'm kind of paraphrasing. We looked at it pretty recently. But the point is, is that he sought for repentance with tears. He wanted his father to repent, to change his mind. But Esau's was not a godly sorrow. He was bummed because he lost the inheritance. He was bummed because he had already sold out. 
he was bummed because he was going to get a blessing. Isaac gives him a blessing, but he gives him a lower blessing. He says, you're going to serve your younger brother. And and the, the rest of the story there. The point is tears don't necessarily mean or translate to godly sorrow. Uh, Esau wanted the inheritance, but he didn't want God. As we wrap up this morning, uh, I want to look at five things. How do we run carefully? Uh, and, and just look at this, take a couple of minutes, and uh, five things that have to do with running carefully, running well, staying in our lane, uh, avoiding discouragement, avoiding sin. The first is lean into the body of Christ. Folks, we were not designed to do this Christianity thing alone. We weren't. You can't do it alone. We've got to stay in fellowship with one another. We need each other. We rely upon each other. As I mentioned earlier, have a heart that looks outward. Have an attitude that esteems others as more important than number one. No, it's not number one. He says, I want you to go low and, and esteem others as more important than yourself. To, to look for the needs uh, that are out there and to allow people to minister to us. It's a two-way street. So lean into the body of Christ is the first. The second is to be a grace-filled, intentional friend. When we see those things, when God shows us the need, uh, when he speaks to our hearts, don't be so drawn in that you're not willing to reach out. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 tells us, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. But if either of them falls, one then the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Let that not be so among us. That, there, that someone falls and there's no one to lift him up. Uh, as I said, be a grace-filled, intentional friend. Folks, these are active things. This is not passive. Walking with the Lord is, it, yeah, it's wonderful. And there's wonderful rest and there's wonderful peace available. But it's not a passive relationship. It's an active relationship. And as we are controlled, as our lives are controlled by him through the Holy Spirit, as he shows us those needs, as he shows us those people who are hurting, as he shows us perhaps gives us an insight into somebody's life, Are you willing to be the one that can be his hands, his feet, his voice, his heart? It's a good question. The third here is to pursue peace and holiness. Pursue your walk with God. Um, It's That's why we talk about learning to think like Jesus. We are in process. Pursue that. Have an active hand in that. This is not something that's like, I just leave here and I put my Christianity on the shelf and I pull it back out next Sunday. That's not what it's about. That's not what it's for. And I, I trust that none of us are in that place. And yet it bears saying, pursue peace. Pursue sanctification. Understand that when we overlay this with the trials that we go through, we can make sense of them. That we can actually see what God's doing very often. Put away bitterness. 
Make peace with every relationship around you to the best of your ability. God is both honored by this and he will honor it. Because there's a connection between our horizontal relationships and the relationship we have with him. The fourth here is run carefully. Don't try to run in the dark. I remember when I was in high school, I lived on the hilltop area up in Tacoma. And... um I had left home a little early and, and enrolled in high school and got my own place and had like three part-time jobs and was going to high school and uh, lived in this neighborhood. And and it was like these old row houses. And then uh, I go down to the end of my street, which was Cushman Street, and there was Ninth Avenue that went all the way up the hill and would go down into downtown Tacoma. It was a pretty busy street. Well, the house right on the corner, the house was tucked back about 20 feet. Uh, there was like a little bit of grass and then the sidewalk and then the yard, right? And, and so the corner house, the, the, the house was tucked back from the, the, the corner and people would constantly cut across the yard. So what the owners of the house, they had a brilliant idea, I guess, and they put one stake right next to the house and one stake right next to the, the, the corner on the crosswalk. And they stretched a bunch of strings of barbed wire. Well, a buddy that I grew up with had moved in and, and, and was there at the house. And I, I walked in one night and I looked at him and he was a torn up bloody mess. I said, Winston, what happened? Is man, I was running. I, cause he would go out running and he usually went running during the day. Well, he forgot about this barbed wire in the dark and he was running full sprint. And, and I mean, he was a big guy. He's like six four and he ran and he, and he had some momentum and he hit that barbed wire and it just tore him up. I was like, Oh, you poor guy. I mean, look at you. You're a mess. You need stitches and all that. When I say don't try to run in the dark, it's hard to see without the Holy Spirit illuminating our way. As Christians, we lose our spiritual bearing if we are engaged in an area of sin. And we can think we're getting away with it. We can think we're walking. We can think we're running and doing all of that. But I'll tell you what, it's like running in the dark and you don't know when you're going to run into some barbed wire and get tangled up. Be watchful. Put away bitterness. Keep yourself from sin. My buddy didn't do well. And I know from my own experience in my own life, just being transparent with you folks, you're not going to do well if you try to do both. If you try to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. That, uh, James says that man is unstable in all of his ways. And, and it's really, it's an invitation for disaster. The fifth and final one is to be sure that your relationship with him is more important than anything else. More important than your relationship with your spouse. More important than your relationship with your kids. More important than anything else. He must be number one. Let's see to it that we're glorifying him in our lives. Walking, running carefully knowing that there are there are landmines out there there are things out there that will that will snag us up there are things out there that if we're not careful to stay running in our path that that we can end up in 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 
trouble that we really don't need to have. So from this passage in Hebrews 12, where he's talking about, he continues with this metaphor of running the race. When we're discouraged, when our hands are hanging down, when our knees are weak, and and we're just kind of looking at the path and thinking, oh, you know, what am I going to do? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. He's got this. All he does is ask of us is to stay close, to just show up. He never asks more than that from us. He says, just show up. What that means is by faith, we're acknowledging him as number one. And we're acknowledging that it's his work. And even when it doesn't look good, he's in control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just this great passage in Hebrews and all of the instruction, the practical application that comes. I pray.